Hey, Bells. Welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie. And this is the show where we play superhero-themed role-playing games and then talk about them. We're going to talk about them. We are talking about C-Issue X from Chris Longhurst. And we've got our guest back with us, Steph. Who do we have? I am so excited to reintroduce Connor Goldsmith, known to many as a literary agent, and to many more, perhaps, as the host of Cerebro, the amazing podcast that focuses on one X character at a time. Hi, ladies. It's so great to be back. Thank you for having me again. It's so good to have you back for this. (laughs) We're happy to have you here. We're doing it. Yeah. We're talking about C-Issue-X. I love that. I had a good time. I still have, actually, because I haven't um, straightened up my like desk since we did this last. I still actually had the cards sitting on the desk when I sat down. I was like, oh, there they are. Oh, I took mine to Kentucky and then back. And they've come back and they're right here. <laughs> there you go. They've made quite a trip. All right. Well, you know, we start these things off with the origin story where we talk about character creation and, and prep. And there was none of that in this game, unless you consider knowing a crap ton about superheroes as part of the prep for this. So, Connor, uh, I think we want to just start and, and just use this time to to chat with you and kind of get to know your history with superheroes and your history with RPGs. So let's do the first one. What's Where did you start with superheroes? So uh, as listeners of Cerebro will know, and they're no doubt already preparing their bingo cards because they like to make fun of me for bringing this up all the time, but most (laughs) of my guests don't know. So I bring it like my guests don't always listen to the show, right? So I talk about this a lot, but my dad is next. They should. I know, but I'm not going to expect every guest to listen to a three to four hour to five hours sometimes podcast every week. You know what I mean? I do. I appreciate that, Stephanie. I do. Um, But my dad is an X-Men collector. So... I grew up with it in the house. I joked the other week that I'm an X-Men Nepo baby because like I (laughs) was immersed in it from an early age in a way that more people aren't. I'm sort of like, you know, the Dakota Johnson of uh, X-Men fans, I guess. It was just in the house and, you know. um, But more seriously, it was just always something I loved and then something that my dad and I could talk about, which was exciting because, well, for a couple of reasons. Um, My dad... And I, without like going into like my whole life story, my dad worked a lot when I was a kid. He traveled a lot. He was a corporate attorney who was in litigation a lot. And so he would, not he wasn't in litigation, but you understand what, I'm, what I mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, so he would be traveling for weeks at a time. And up until I was about 12, there were issues I had with like not feeling that regular closeness, right? But we had certain things that really helped with that. One was like, we always watched Mystery Science Theater together. Like we had a show that we would watch together. And then once he introduced me to the X-Men when I was like seven or eight, I would say he bought me the, it was the early Marvel Masterworks that had started coming out. Mm. Um, So it was like the 70s stuff and the 60s stuff, but the 70s stuff by Claremont was what I, well, initially Giant Sizes by Len Wein. Yeah. uh, But you get what I'm saying. Yes. The Claremont run was what I gravitated towards because Storm was incredible. I loved Jean as Phoenix more than I liked her as Marvel Girl in uh, in the 60s anyway. I like, I mean, I have have my issues with her, but I think 80s Marvel Girl era (laughs) is interesting. We refer you to the uh, Cerebro episode on Jean Grey with special guest Sarah Century. Yeah, there you go. Or to the upcoming episode 100 on Madeline Pryor also with Sarah Century, which will be sort of a part two. But that was the fictional world that I lost myself in more than anything else as a kid. And then as I got older, it was just a genre I really loved. I read more widely than X-Men, but X-Men was really the focus. I think like many gay kids, I saw myself in the narrative. Mm. Uh, I also have a complicated relationship to Judaism. My father is Jewish, but his mother was not. And my grandfather was an atheist. And it was like so... It's not a thing religiously in my family or wasn't, but the character of Kitty Pride and the way that she spoke about her heritage really resonated with me. And as an adult, I mean, I uh, actually did my bar mitzvah during COVID at age 33. So only like 20 years late, but (laughs) it was something I wanted to do for myself. I'm not really a religious person, but I do feel strongly about being connected to the Jewish people. And when you're patrilineal, that's complicated. So 
It was just a whole thing. But uh, anyway, I saw myself in a lot of those narratives. I collected trading cards. I played whatever video games there were. It was nice on the playground to be able to talk to straight boys about X-Men and know lots of stuff about X-Men because they wanted to talk about X-Men and know things about X-Men that I knew that they didn't. So that was helpful in building friendships. And uh, overall, like it's just kind of been a lifelong passion for me, which is why when I was so bored during COVID, I was like, let me do something. And the only thing I could think of that I would want to talk about extemporaneously for hours on end was that franchise. <laughs> so, How many podcasts have 2020 as part of their origin story? A bunch. But the thing that I'm proud of myself, I guess, about is that it, I, like, I didn't I think a lot of people started a project in 2020 and then kind of petered out on it because it's so much work, which you don't realize before you start doing it. And this isn't to criticize anybody who started it and was like, actually, I hate this and stop doing it. But, you know, I, I do it all myself. I edit the audio myself. I book the guests myself. I do the research myself. So, like, I didn't anticipate how much work it would be. And I am proud of myself for sticking it out uh, for two and a half years now. Yeah, wow. Part of it is that it found an audience, right? And it was, it's was it been very successful for me. So I would be crazy not to keep doing it. because. But I also love doing it, which is nice. It's nice to love what you do, you know? We love what you do. <laughs> Thank do, you. Yeah. Stephanie's been on two episodes of my podcast, by the way, and you should check them out. If you're a Stephanie Burt fan, which I assume you are if you're listening to this podcast, she is my guest for the Kitty Pride or Kate Pride, depending on the era episode, and for the Warlock episode. And we're scheduling, uh, we're scheduling another one, aren't we? Yes, but we do need we need to talk about that because uh, offline, because I think uh, we may need to pick a different character. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I know, I know. You've but, got a whole list. Yeah, we'll talk offline. Don't worry about it. I myself am a Fiona Hopkins fan. And uh, <laughs> Fiona does so many things, and one of them is to get us back on track. Yeah. I was about to say, a squirrel girl is not a mutant, so I don't have anything to contribute. Legally distinct, yes, as they exactly. say in, uh, in the comic, <laughs> because at the time, you had to. Damn you, Fox. I have, I mean, I have my own theories about that, but... Um, oh, well, so, they, no, they, it's, it was a legal thing. I mean, that's, they've been open about that being the joke. Like, you know, we need to own this IP. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. But it's, for me, it's that Myra doesn't want Doreen on Krakoa. Oh, I mean, listen, that my, would make yeah. sense to me, because if anyone's going to fuck up the phalanx in a way that doesn't make any sense, it would be Squirrel Girl. So I wouldn't She's want unbeatable. her on my long-term thousand-year nefarious plan island either personally what's a big storyline for you i read inferno when i was 12 and it imprinted on my brain in ways that forensic psychologists will be talking about if they're <laughs> analyzing me <laughs> hundreds of years from now uh, because they'll be like wow that's interesting right um pretty much everything connor says is about inferno in some way you just have to trace it back well at the very least it's about 80s x-men that's really the run that i love most mm -hmm. i would say like from starting in 79 like proteus up through the end of Claremont's run, although the, the very end is messy yeah. because there was a lot of drama going on behind the scenes. But certainly up through Siege Powerless, uh, I love that stuff. All the Outback era, that's my favorite team. Um, I'm a big Betsy Braddock fan. Mm. I'm thrilled that she is herself again. That's all I really ever wanted, even as a child. So that's been an exciting development for me. I think that what I related to most were the stories about female characters coming into their power and having a lot of difficulty with that. I related to the girls in a way I didn't relate to the male characters. The male characters were interesting to look at. I mean, like that, mm -hmm. you know, but they were not... Much like Chris Claremont, I viewed them as largely ancillary to the narratives of the female characters. And so I think that's also part of why that franchise really spoke to me. Yeah. Excellent. Let's talk about RPGs. So what's... What is your history there? So I never played tabletop for real in person until like a couple years ago, like or maybe even last year. I'm trying to think of like the timing. Yeah, because of COVID. So it was probably last year. Yeah. But uh, as a teenager, I was big into MMOs uh, and I would role play in those. City of Heroes was a big one for me because it was superheroes, right? Yeah. Um, and then... When I was 17, a friend of mine from that world, shout out to Alex, if you're listening. Hi, Alex. Brought me to Mush, like to the Telnet 
clients, the text-based oh, stuff yeah. that, uh, w- so you could tabletop online, basically. And I did that for years. Um, I actually played a lot of Mutants and Masterminds. I ran a Mutants and Masterminds game for a while. That was like original characters, but I also ran a DC game that didn't have a system, but like that we did moderate and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It was based on the Bruce Timm cartoons, which were huge at the time. Mm -hmm. We we used that universe because it was more streamlined. The thing about me is like, it didn't say streamlined for long. I was like, here's a character (laughs) profile for Black Orchid. Anybody want to play this character? And they're like, who is this? I don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, that was just sort of my way always. We have gotten listener mail asking when we're going to play Mutants and Masterminds. The thing is, it's a really like, statting out a character in D20 is so exhaustive that I think, especially with Mutants and Masterminds, because it's all customized. Yeah. So I, I understand why that wouldn't... It's not really like a just plug-and-play kind of game. It's You kind of have to sit down with the DM or the GM or the storyteller, or whatever they call it in that game, and like map out what you want. So it would be hard to do that like on the air, as opposed to this game where we just kind of improvised, which I thought was good. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of my... His, like I did the mush, muck, smud... Mostly Mush World uh, and Mox Code. These are different code bases for the kids listening. We're oh, like, sure, I have yeah. no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Multi-user shared hallucination. Multi-user yes. shared hallucination. Is there a song for that? Are you singing? Multi-user. No, I just. No, okay. I'm just musical in how I speak. <laughs> okay, it's good. I'm just gay. Yeah. Um. So. <laughs> On that, I, I played Mutants and Masterminds. I played Dungeons and Dragons. I played uh, the old Star Wars RPG from the 80s. I played, or no, it was actually, it was the more recent one. The tabletop I've been doing now is the old Star Wars RPG from the 80s, which is so mm. much fun. Ooh. I played a lot of World of Darkness stuff. So like, you know, that, uh, I, I, I actually went up to Sean and McGuire once at a con and I was like, so we've never met. But like when I was 14, we did interact on like, I'm, Bleep. Like, I'm not going to say the name of the World of Darkness <laughs> game, but, you know, and she was like, oh my God, that's so funny. And I was like, so, you know, nice to see you succeeding. <laughs> but uh, she was like, you must have been like a child. I was like, I literally was a child. Don't even worry about it. You would not remember this interaction. <laughs> so that was sort of it for me. And then now as an adult, I've actually, um, it's actually, it's friend of my pod, Teeny Howard, her husband, Blake, he's been like an official storyteller for White Wolf. And uh, he writes on their Vampire the... They both have, but he, I think, continues to write on their Vampire the Masquerade comics occasionally. So he was running a Star Wars game. And I was like, sure, that would be fun. I like these people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think we're going to do a little vampire soon. So that's fun. Ooh. It's just, it's it's interesting for me because I almost always play female characters, which ties back to the Chris Claremont of it all. Yeah, and. Yeah. In the online RP space, it's much easier to just do that. Whereas if I'm sitting around a table, I sometimes feel odd. But I'm, <laughs> I've pushed past it. It just took me a second to be like, I am a femme fatale sitting at this table and I am just going to speak that way and live my life. And, you know, but um, it's it's a lot of fun. I've been enjoying it and I enjoyed doing this. It was nice to hmm. to do live in person in that way. Yeah, yeah. What's your What's your Star Wars character? She is a Zeltron Force Witch who was taken from her family and apprentice to Jarek, the Mira Luka Sith Inquisitor from... This is like, he's an old canon character, but um, she's a lot of fun. And uh, she's a little evil, but not really. And she's trying to be good, which I always find fun. That's so Connor. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, in Zeltron, like the Zeltros culture is entirely focused on sexuality so she's very sex forward and the other characters in the adventuring party are not particularly Mm -hmm. so there's been like fun interaction between her and like a jedi who's a little more buttoned up and female so it's been it's been an interesting um thing and the silliness of that culture in canon lets me play with it without feeling like i'm you know writing a caricature <laughs> you know it's it's fun it's been fun um that campaign is ending soon which i'm sad about because i've really enjoyed oh. it but it's been going for like a year so you know things yeah come and go I, have, I always have trouble with campaigns ending yeah i mean what i like about it teeny talked about this on kieran gillen's podcast uh, a while back it is a creative thing that feels really safe like you can just play with stuff 
because it's you and your friends sitting around. No one's ever going to read it. Like you can take big plot swings or big character swings that you're not sure you would do if you were like selling this narrative. But you can say, what if I tried this and see if it works? And, you know, there's... You're playing without a net, but the net is that, like, it will never matter. The sessions are not recorded and no one will ever see this. So, like, if you really don't come up with a good comeback to the bad guy, no one but your friends will ever know. So... (laughs) (laughs) I've got one more question that's a Connor question, and then we're gonna... We can move towards discussing C issue X, which is, you have taken so many deep dives into different X characters as a podcaster doing this over the years. I want to know if any of that has fed back into the way you role play. Probably just the general process of thinking through these characters as though they're real people. I mean, the thing about my show is I'm always stressing they're not real people and that we need to look at them as structures in a narrative, especially given that it's a narrative written by dozens and dozens of people over 80 years now, almost in terms of Marvel Comics canon. Yeah. But there's something at the same time to saying, okay, with that, bearing that in mind, what is like the psychological interiority we could try to build for this character that makes sense of as many of these stories as we could make sense of? They can't all fit together. It's not possible, but doing what you can do. And so I definitely think about that more uh, when I'm figuring out a character for a role-playing game. But also, again, like for me, role-playing games with friends are like a place to just be really creatively almost slapdash a little bit, like to just see what sticks and to throw things at the wall. I'm a very, I mean, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Like I'm a very particular person when it comes to my own creative work. I am notoriously a control freak about my podcast to the point that I still edit it myself, even though people have offered to like, hey, I'm a professional editor. Do you want to hire me to do this? And I'm like, I just can't because I need (laughs) to know that I have the final edit. I'm very like, a tourist about my podcast in that way. And so it's nice to just relax. So I would say that I guess part of what I've learned from the podcast is to be able to let that impulse go in a setting where I'm like, this isn't something that 20,000 people are going to download. This isn't something where I have to be smart or perfect. This can just be something where I have a character, they throw me into a situation and I just improv. And I'm like, I've never been great at improv. So, you know, it's a it's a different muscle, which I find invigorating. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for for sharing those stories with us and the listeners, Connor. And now it is time to move on to the letters page. This is going to be just some general discussion about C-Issue X. And we always start this off with the same question. And Steph, why don't you take it this week? What is this game trying to do? This is a game, if you're, it's, it's been a while since you listened to the actual play for this game. I can refresh your memory very briefly. This is a game that's played with a deck of cards, many of which you write on as you play the game. And as you work your way through the different scenarios that the game provides, you use the cards that you have dealt yourself from what's called the the player deck, your own deck that you've created, to figure out whether you've got people or places or principles or powers that recur for your superhero. And you get some choice, but you've always got those four that keep coming up. It's a game designed to be played solo or with others. And it's a game that is designed to replicate the arc-based but long-running plots of long-running superhero comics, where you get an event and an arc. You get the Kulan Goth arc, and you get the Proteus story, and you get the big, long, world-changing Inferno crossover. And in each of the arcs after the first one, characters and moral dilemmas and places and situations come back. So it's a game that in particular is designed to simulate the way that events and things come back. Mm -hmm. But more broadly, it's designed to simulate the plotting of a superhero comic. It simulates plot. I think what it also does is build on what I was just saying about an ongoing property like X-Men, which is that it forces you to regard all of the characters and settings and plot developments in the narrative as structures, narrative structures, rather than as characters per se. Your character, the protagonist, is someone you're thinking of as an RPG character. But like, for example, 
Doris, my valet, who I made up, was then a card that I would draw and have to put in certain situations because she's not a person. She's a narrative element. She's a vector for storytelling, right? So that was a good way of thinking about it because it made it much easier for me to kill her off at the end. <laughs> not, you know, not that, and I was hesitant because I didn't, but I was also like, this is the best thing for the story, you know? And it was easier because I was looking at a set of cards and thinking, what are the pieces I have here? Mm. I, I was I was sad when Doris died. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of treating these people as real people. Right, but that means it's a good story. Like, you, you yes. know? Yeah. yeah, she's not real. Right. And, you know, and, and, and again, in the sequel, I'd bring her back as a ghost. So it'd all be fine. Yeah. She'd, but she, but this would give her superpowers. Like the thing about dying in a superhero comic is sometimes it just makes you come back stronger, even if it takes a while. We will now talk about Doug Ramsey. Look at Bucky Barnes or, you know, like, yeah, or Doug Ramsey. I mean, like, there's lots of characters. Ilyana Rasputina, it took a long time, but she's one of Marvel's A-list characters now. I mean, that'll happen. About time. So, given that description, uh, the follow-up question is, is C-Issue X successful at what it's trying to do in, in, in having these arcs of having this that sort of narrative component view of superhero stories? What do you think, Connor? I think it is certainly a successful thought experiment. I had fun using it as a as an exercise, basically like a creative exercise. I don't know how successful it is as a game. I think it works really well for the way we did it, which was like to make a record of it as some, like what I was left with at the end was I was like, I kind of want to write this now, you know, mm -hmm. but in a way where I didn't feel like I had written it. Whereas I think that a more involved, immersive RPG experience, you feel like you did write it, even though you didn't. Mm. You know what I mean? This felt like building a scaffolding. And so as a way of studying the narratives of this genre, I think it's enormously effective. And so given that that's what it primarily seems like it's set out to do, I think that it works in that capacity. Yeah, it, it does what it promises to do. One of the things it promises to do is to be a game that you can play by yourself mm -hmm. as well as a game you can play with with friends. And, and just that, I think, is part of the structure. What it does that other kinds of RPGs that are, as you say, more immersive don't do is to isolate plot from scene description and dialogue. You could, if you wanted, try to play this game describing the interactions that each scene and each question solicits. You could actually play out the scenes. Yeah, we just yeah. didn't do that because it's not how yeah. the game's written, but you absolutely could if you wanted to. And and there aren't there aren't mechanics for playing out the scenes. That's the, the mechanics thing. the mechanics are entirely for making a plot. And there are quite a lot of superhero comic books that are plotted by one person and written by another so that for a whole bunch of of 90s comics for example if i'm remembering how this how this worked uh someone like scott lobdell who was running the x line in the 90s would hand a younger writer like mark wade a plot and say write this and make it into a comic and mark wade would then figure out panel by panel what we were seeing and what the pacing was for each plot beat and what the characters would say. I'm just going to interrogate game, that a little. I'm sorry. Why Mark Wade? He, I mean, he had recently been hired at Marvel and that's what they were giving him to do in the 90s. Sure, sure. I know. I just was, that was, just, I was just like, is Mark Wade who you would hire to write this comic? I was just, I was like, no, intrigued. not at all. Not remotely. I was just intrigued. I would hire Steve Gerber to write this comic if he were around, and we'll Oof. get to that when we do the back issues. I would not hire Steve Gerber to write a comic about... Okay, I wouldn't actually hire Steve Gerber for anything because women. he was notoriously difficult to work with. But <laughs> he's he's not, creative I, and... He was a great, he's a great writer. It's just not... He did not, a good Dr. Fate. be my first pick. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really. Mark Wade was the first name that came to mind when I thought about who do I know has scripted a bunch of Marvel comics that were plotted by someone else. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I was just I was just intrigued by that poll. It, just because, again, it's like the improv game that we just played. It's like, name a person who's important to your character. You had name a workman-like comics writer and your brain went to Mark Waid, and I just thought that was interesting. This is the first game that we've played on the show that generates 
that mechanically generates plot without mechanically generating panels or more specific interactions. And I love the way that it made me think about the bones of a story without sort of the the skin. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. And it made me, I mean, I'm working on a comics project right now. um, And it made me think structurally about some of the stuff I'm doing. So that was exciting. I I gather you're not allowed to say anything about the project. It's not for Marvel or DC. I can tell you that. It's something I'm working on independently. But otherwise, no, I I want to... uh, it's a horror comic that I'm working on with my friend Josh Cornell, but I can't really say more about it right now because we're going to pitch it. So, mm. Okay. I want to look a little bit at the character creation pieces of this. And I was listening over to the edit this morning. And so, sir, Ryan, folks, you start with four cards. Your superpowers, a person who's close to you, a principle, and a place that's close to you. How do we feel about this as like a distillation of like superhero character creation? Like if you were only going to ask four questions, are these the four that you would want for a superhero? I think it depends on how you are approaching the game. I have like Stephanie, I think, came in with a character who felt very contemporary, uh, which is totally a valid way to play the game. I thought of it as like if we're looking at the growth of the superhero genre I started with what I thought would be a more golden age superhero kind of character and for that I think those are the key four questions Mm -hmm. you know I mean I used the name Charlotte Bishop it's actually a name I've used I used that name in a Mutants and Masterminds game very very long time ago as a reference to Sandra Knight Phantom Lady who's my favorite like golden age superheroine who's kind of a lady Batman so I incorporate that was sort of the starting point here too was like okay, socialite, lady, Batman type character. And so you look at Batman and it's those four things. Superpowers, nothing, just technology. Someone important to him, Alfred or Robin are the two. Setting, stately Wayne Manor. And principle, be the fear in the night that strikes terror into the heart of criminals. It later evolves after the Golden Age into not killing, but that's a later Batman innovation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's an example of how this game could evolve. You could, your card could initially be, my principle is I will strike terror into the hearts of criminals and then a plot could happen in which you go without killing them as something you add to the card, which I had to do, like I had that thing that was like, you know, protect the innocent from unethical uses of magic was like my principle, right? And then as the game went on, it became... Oh no, actually it was it was I have to be res- I, I have to be responsible for protecting the world from evil magic. And then as it went on, the thing that shifted about it was I will always step in to protect people from an evil use of magic, mm. which is an evolution of the character that wasn't in my initial conception. But once she started to see how it impacted people around her, she felt compelled to act. So so to answer your question, I think that the four questions are great in terms of the beginning of the genre. And it does feel like, because I read through the PDF, it feels like it's structured in such a way as to mimic the progression of the genre. You have this more small time, golden age origin. And then when you hit big time, that's more of like a silver age moment where something cosmic or out of your realm of understanding happens. And then it does seem like the game proceeds into the extreme 90s and all of that. So there is a gritty reboot arc option. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, I think for that context, it works very well. If I were saying, let's create a Bronze Age character, like the 80s stuff that I love so much, I would have probably a different set of questions. It would be like, what's your superpower? What is the theme of your adventure, which is similar to the principal question. I think they said you could do a theme. Mm -hmm. But then, like, what's a major character flaw? What's something that makes you vulnerable? Like, things like that. What's something you struggle with? Because that's more what superhero comics became about. Was uh, Claremont innovated a lot of that. The sort of soapy, interpersonal drama stuff that I really love, but that isn't really part of this game, in part because you're not acting out the social interaction. As I, because of me, I tried to Bronze Age the game anyway. Right, and I think it was interesting to see, it was interesting to see us take a different approach to it because you came in with a character who I think would have debuted in like 1988. And I came in with a character who I designed as like she's debuting in 1935. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the way that they evolved in parallel was interesting to see 
Because that's true of these ongoing universes too, right? Like, yeah. there are characters in DC and Marvel Comics who did debut in 1935 who are now shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with characters who debuted in the 80s and shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with characters who debuted in 2023. Yeah. And they all have to interact in the same space. So that was part of the thought exercise that was interesting because I was sort of going a little campy with it, like, here we are in a golden age story. And you were like, that's <laughs> not what I'm doing. And so whenever it would yeah. flip back and forth, I found that, kind of interesting, and it made my character feel even more stylized, which I enjoyed. I, I love the way that this game, in its multiplayer version, encourages that. And that's one of, one of the things that I like about you know, long-running, company-owned superhero stories is that you can have those kinds of interactions with characters who are both brightly costumed fighters against evil, who just inhabit entirely different story worlds and you know what happens when ms marvel has to team up with the silver surfer like what happens when zatanna has to have a conversation with red tornado like this game is in its multiplayer version is designed to generate plots like that quickly and to get you out of the awkwardness that you'd get if you had to script the conversation before you knew what happened next Everything I really love about this game and everything where I feel like it falls short can be summed up in this game generates plots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's let's dig into that uh, a little bit. I mean, is this is I think one of the questions is this telling plots that you want from a superhero game? And, and then how do you feel about plots versus, um, you know, sort of closer scene based stuff? I agree that it feels more like a journaling exercise than it does like a game necessarily. Like it, it is more of a writing prompt exercise, which I find very interesting, but that is not usually what I come to a tabletop game for. So uh, I enjoyed doing it with the two of you, but I don't know that this is something I would bring to my friends like, let's play this together because it's less mm -hmm. of a game in my view and more of a creative writing exercise. And I found that exciting, but I also... It's different. It's like a different category yeah. to me from something like Dungeons and Dragons or Vampire or whatever. This is your intro into the wide world of indie journaling RPGs. Yeah, which is like not my not my wheelhouse, but it was an interesting thing to do. I would literally bring this to a writing class if anyone ever asks me to teach a fiction writing class with superhero themes, which I have done, but not for a while. I think for that goal, it's enormously effective at crystallizing the things that you want to tease out. It's perfect. My favorite bit that happened here was when it was like, draw this card. Do they get away or not? If they do, then go to such page. If they don't, they weren't the real bad guy. Who's the real mm -hmm. bad guy? And that is just, I mean, part of what I, I don't really work on fiction very much anymore, apart from the clients I already have, but I used to work pretty heavily in my day job on sci-fi fantasy and horror fiction. Uh, and I would do workshops, like this is all before COVID. I haven't done a writer's conference since COVID. But when I would teach plotting, mm -hmm. a lot of it would be stuff like that, which would be like, what's the reversal here? There needs to be something that switches the positionality in the power dynamic between the protagonist and the antagonist. What is it? It should happen roughly 10 times over the course of your novel. Where is it here? What's your inciting incident? What's, the, you know, and so seeing that not only meet it out really effectively here, but with a lot of thought toward how this genre works specifically, I thought was really smart. And so I, uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, it did make me think like this is a this is a character it'd be fun to do something with. But I was also left a little frustrated with the fact that we had created this whole interesting arc and then like not played it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, it's kind of the thing where I'm like, mm. but that's the point of the game. So again, it's very successful at what it does. All the characters we created are now part of the lore of uh, New Arcadia. True, and and they they go in the Bible, yep. and uh, you know they can they'll come back. Stately Bishop Manor. Yeah. Welcome back. I think the another thing that I kind of want to get into around the mechanisms of this game is, and sort of the promises of this game is that cards come back. Yes. Mm, yeah. And I, I, I think there's there's two ways to think about this here, and and I think on the one side, this game almost from the the description of it and the way the cover art so shows it is there's almost this wackiness of dealing with retconning these previous things and how do they fit in and sort of the creativity and the fun around that. I think that's sort of one extreme on this. The other way is, does it end up kind of being samey 
because you are seeing the same cards coming back. How did this feel kind of in that in that continuum, or, or am I even framing this in a way that, that makes sense? Well, I think that that actually is part of the critique that the game is making of the genre and of the nature of ongoing narratives that pass between writers, is that it becomes derivative. I mean, there's a famous bit from Jonathan Hickman, don't write comics about comics because that's how you tell a story that's not accessible and that's not particularly interesting. And what that means is not necessarily as obvious as it might seem. That doesn't mean don't reference prior continuity, but it's you always need to be telling a new story. You always need to be doing something new with the old pieces, the old toys that you're reusing. And I think that this game is good at that because it forces you to pull up, again, it's using them as structures, as things that exist, and then asking you to place them in a new position as the narrative continues. Doris became the host of the evil entity. And that was because I pulled that card and was like, that would be fun, you know? And that's a new story. That's not a, like comics about comics is when you do a whole issue that's like, here I am doing this whole issue just to explain a bit of prior continuity that only a huge nerd like me cares about. Whereas (laughs) here it's like, find a way to reuse these pieces. At the same time, there is a valid complaint to be made about superhero comics that a lot of the time they're just playing the hits. And the innovators, like someone like Jonathan Hickman or Grant Morrison or Alan Moore, the people who are seen as really big brains in that genre, are typically people who look at the pieces and say, what crazy new thing can I do with Mm -hmm. these pieces? I mean, you mentioned Moira McTaggart earlier. The House of X retcon of Moira McTaggart recontextualizes the entire prior 60 years of X-Men storytelling in one moment in a way that isn't perfect. There's comics that it now makes not make sense. But for yeah. the most part, it works. And yeah. it it isn't comics about comics because now the character is a completely different person. And now the reader is left looking back at old stories, rethinking it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's kind of the thing I was trying to do with Doris in that story. Yeah. It was say like, what if there's something about Doris that was sinister all along? And But the game asked me that. Yeah. The game asked me that in the same way that, a st- that characters like... Moira McTaggart or Jamie Braddock, who was the subject of my most recent Cerebro episode. Jamie Braddock is introduced as Brian Braddock, Captain Britain's loyal brother who helps him out in his 70s adventures. And then Jamie That doesn't Del- last long. Well, it lasts a while, more longer than you'd think. It lasts about 10 years. But then Jamie Delano in the 80s decides to do a really scathing satire about imperialism by the British Empire and about Mark Thatcher, who was at the time the Prime Minister's son, and uses Jamie in that role and turns him into a really despicable character. And then Chris Claremont turns him into a powerful supervillain who's a little more cartoony to walk back a little bit the true, abject, realistic horror of the Delano arc. So you see different creators, because Claremont created the character initially, right? And he liked the Delano story, but was like, okay, how do I keep this character usable while respecting that continuity? And that's Mm. also how it works. You also have to figure out how to work with other people. And that was why I didn't, Like, I don't think it would be as interesting to do this by myself as a journaling exercise because part of what was interesting about it was that I had to roll with the stuff that Stephanie brought to the table. But like the entire Mesopotamian relics angle and the archaeology department at the art school and all of that that became really key to my story, those were things that Stephanie introduced. And part of the genre and is rolling with punches that way. You can't really be a true auteur in superhero comics because it's, (laughs) well, not certainly, I mean, if it's creator-owned stuff, that's different. But I'm talking about like in big two comics, you have to be working under an editor who might throw something at you that you weren't expecting. You have to be working under a corporate now that might throw something at your editor that they weren't expecting. And you have to also be able to work with all of the other writers who are creating in the same world that you're all building out. And sometimes that changes your story for the better. Other times it can hamper your story and you have to be able to roll with the punches when that happens. Yeah, There's there's two things that this cards keep coming back. You don't know what card's going to come up. System simulates that 
distinguishes company-owned superhero comics from most other kinds of storytelling. One is a strength of, an unambiguous strength of these stories, which is that you get all these callbacks, and if you like these kinds of stories, you probably like the callbacks. And this is a system that is designed to generate callbacks and recurring villains and recurring situations and to have characters whose stories evolve in these kinds of fractal self-incorporating ways. The other thing that happens in company-owned superhero comics that doesn't happen in novel writing, usually, is that corporate comes in and says, we have a movie coming out about Black Canary, so you must use Black Canary. So we need her to be in this book, right? Right. And that is a way to change your story for better or worse. And those kinds of rolling with those kinds of punches are things that the card drawing simulates. mechanic central to this game simulates. And I, I kind of love that. And I, I love the feeling of not being on my own with characters, whether or not I'm telling that story. I love being part of a fandom. I love reading books about super teams. I love the way that this allows you to plot in, in ways that are necessarily multiplayer, even while what it generates, again, is a plot. Yeah, well, I mean, think about, to go to the Claremont example, like... As one does, as we keep doing on the show. Well, I'm doing it because I know it's a reference point we both share, and it's also what my show is primarily about. But famously, in the Dark Phoenix saga, Gene commits genocide because John Byrne drew it that way, more extremely than Chris Claremont had scripted it. Once it was on the page, they ran with it. Chris's plan was not to kill the character, but Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief, said she had to be punished, so you have to kill her off. Chris kills her off, creates the Madeline Pryor character as Scott Summers' new love interest, gets really invested in her, and then is told six years later by Jim Shooter, we're bringing Jean Grey back from the dead and John Byrne's going to do it and you have no real input on it. And so you got to figure this out because we need Scott and Jean back together. This is after Chris has had Scott marry Madeline and have a child. Yes. That turns into what the fuck am I going to do with Madeline Pryor? She becomes <laughs> this Girl Friday character for the X Men in a way that's really fun, and then is turned into the Goblin Queen because they're like, you got to get rid of this character. We ha- she has to be evil so that Scott abandoning his family is not the great crime that readers are seeing it as because it was pretty bad. Yeah. So that's all an example of forces beyond like that's chris claremont pulling a bunch of bad cards in this game that's right and having to roll with it and doing it in such a way that inferno the story i love so much is born from like six different restrictions or obligations that were placed in his narrative that he was not happy about that's but right he turned it into something really great and part of that was also in collaborating with louise simonson on it although you know i mean you can see the tension in inferno because she is following the editorial mandate of madeline Pryor is evil and he is writing her as like the protagonist of a shakespearean tragedy for whom you feel deep sympathy and it just between issues starts bouncing but her characterization bounces so much and you're like this is a little wild but that's part of what makes the crossover feel so epic and crazy is the big swings that the characters take between issues so it's again akin to this format of like we each have a deck and we're each making decisions about what to do with the deck so that was fun yeah another asset to the game mechanic is there are ways of killing off or getting rid of characters and many, many ways of bringing them back. Mm -hmm. And that is, in fact, having a PC die is one of the arcs that you can play in this game. And we should probably talk about the arcs. Sure. Yeah, actually... I, I think that'll probably come up in in ongoing um, because uh, we I think we do need to move on. So we end the letters page with the same question every time. When did this game make you feel like a superhero? And Steph, why don't you start with this? That is a harder question for me with this game than with most of the others we've played on the show because this game is so much about putting yourself in the position of the writer. But I felt most like a superhero in the specific moment of trying to persuade the Griffin not to destroy everything by pitching this ridiculous claim that by using my powers on social media, I would convince everyone to drive electric cars within 24 hours. That was the most over-the-top combination of powers and ideology and hopefulness and personality and ridiculousness that we got to. And, and that was my favorite moment. Connor, when did uh, the Sybil feel like a superhero? 
I think that the moment I most felt like I was actually like, oh, this is a superhero comic moment is that moment when my like home was suddenly turned against me. Like that happens to Batman sometimes, obviously. But to me, it also had that vibe of like, oh no, the X-Mansion's been compromised. The danger room is trying to kill us. Or um, (laughs) even this isn't his home, but there's that famous bit in Dark Phoenix Saga that was what made Wolverine explode in popularity as a character, that Wolverine alone issue where he's been booted out of the Hellfire Club, like through the floor, and he has to fight his way back in. And that kind of like diehard, I have to get in to rescue someone or kill the villain or whatever is like a very genre feeling moment to me. So when it was like, what am I to do now? My seat of power has been taken from me. It felt very like a comic book cliffhanger splash page, which I really enjoyed. So also like the reveal that it was Doris all along. I was like, (gasps) you know, that when that, when I pulled that card, I was like, oh, this is really fun. You know, like, and that was a moment where I was like, this is the big splash page that goes bang, the issue's over. And fans go, what the fuck for a whole month on Twitter? Like, you know, it was that feeling. I'm I'm glad that that, I mean, that, that particular moment feels to me like a, a real crystallization of the promise of this game mm-hmm. of you need a villain and you pulled your old faithful retainer. And so like, yep, yep. they're the villain. Yeah, Doris. Okay, so we are going to go to ongoings, retcons, and spinoffs. This is a little bit of a rapid fire section. And the prompt for ongoing is what part of this game did we not get to in our actual play or is something that you would want to explore or explore more than we did uh, in our session. So, Connor, I want to start with you on this. I would have really liked to do the grim and gritty 90s uh, arc because I thought it would be really funny to turn this character, like for her to have her Catwoman hair out titty comic era, you know? like Oh, no. I, well, I, Teeny writes Catwoman, and uh, Blake and I are always, we love that costume because we're like, high drama that way. We're like, fashion. And she's just like, this is not my not my Catwoman. And I think that there is something about that 90... Or like, you know, in Fantastic Four, when like Sue Storm suddenly has the cutout over her boobs in the shape of a four and is like wearing a... Th- I would have been really funny to turn this character into that for an arc <laughs> and to like figure out what is the insane 90s-ification of this character. That would have been fun to me. So I was I was sad that we didn't get there. But in general, I think that each of these arcs has a lot to offer and I was intrigued to do more of them after we finished. So mm-hmm. I think that shows the success of the game. Stefan, I'm going from you. So this game does have all these other arcs that you can play. And I also, if we we're going to play this more, would want to explore some of those other arcs. But I would not want to do the grim and gritty 90s arc. That was like where I stopped reading comics was when everything got grim and gritty. I would want to do the arc called Finding Your Place, which just asks you to, it mechanically requires you to have character development. I would not mind doing the government work arc. I'm always trying to find an excuse to uh, heroize infrastructure maintenance. I would certainly want to try the relationship arc in which you start dating an NPC. There are two different kind of sidekick arcs, one in which you acquire a sidekick and one in which you become the sidekick. And there is another one where a bunch of villains team up, which after you've played four or five arcs of this would be super fun. And many of these are kinds of plots that if you are GMing a more conventionally immersive RPG, you can adapt. But I would have loved to see any or all of those in a longer game of CSUX. Cool. So for for me, one of the things that you can do with this game is once you have your deck is you can go around to other people. I think that in many ways, more traditionally structured RPGs, characters, you don't really hop from campaign to campaign very much. In some ways, campaigns are built around the characters. Here, you can take your cards and go to someone else who's got their CSUX character and make a new crossover together. And that seems like a like an interesting, you know, a fun way to explore the 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 world and the narrative things. Yeah. I love that. I, I I it says in the rules briefly that you can do that, but I didn't think about that. I'm that's my new answer. Is that the best thing that we could do? <laughs> Hang on to your cards, people. Yeah, no, I mean I'm I've Road trip. I've still got them. And I think that the ability that this game provides the one thing is you'll run out of space on the playing card eventually, but I do think that there's an appeal 
a comic booky appeal to the way that this just builds and builds and builds and you could successfully build and you could have it. Like this team up between these two characters gave us all of this. What would it be like if I was with someone else suddenly and using these cards and these two characters were now interfacing and that's how real comics work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You take Betsy Braddock out of her context as a Captain Britain character and make her an X-Men character. Suddenly she's got a very different story going on. Then if you make her a Captain Britain character again you're bringing all of that X-Men stuff into Captain Britain that you had originally brought all the Captain Britain stuff into X. Like, what does that do? You you can sort of reverse things too, which is fun and interesting. And then like, what if she met the Avengers? Like, there's all sorts of stuff you can do that that this game simulates in a way that I think is exciting. Now onto a retcon. And so this, the question here is, is there something, having played this now, you would think about a new approach or a hack, or something you would change if you were to play it again. Steph, do you have a retcon? I would want a larger player deck. I would want two more places and two more supporting characters, NBCs, people, to be in my player deck to begin with, because in the first arc or two of this game, you have a choice of either a new character or one of a very small number of recurring supporting characters and villains coming back. And that's inevitable if you're simulating issues 1 through 10 of a brand new title in a new universe. But my favorite issues of my favorite comics tend to not be that. They're, you know, issue 110 to 150 or issue 123 to 124. And I would want to be able to have more characters and situations recur faster that were recognizable as callbacks. How about you, Connor? Yeah, I think that, again, it's because the game is simulating initially that golden age feeling of a very intimate story with a limited cast. But I do think that it would be more fun to have more characters and more locations at play. It did feel like we went back to the same two places a lot. And that worked in some ways. Again, like the development that happened with the Doris character was because I kept pulling her card. But I do think it felt a little silly that we kept going back to the archaeology department, for example. Like, I think that a few more locations would have been helpful. And the thing is, like, that's where the game starts to go, right? So part of it is that we stopped after the first two rounds. And it felt a little bit like the game was just starting to cook when we stopped playing Mm. it. Yeah. It did cook, though. Oh, it did. But, like, I do feel like arc three and four were probably going to have that feeling that we're talking about because we would have had... Like, I had just brought in the the hammer, that anti-magic evil group that I had to compromise with to get back into my house. And, like, now this Project Wide Awake type thing is lurking in the background. Like, there's now a whole avenue for a story where the director of that organization is someone I have to interface with or they try to kill me and I'm like, hey, I thought we had a deal or, you know, (laughs) there's all kinds of things that now that could be pulled in, but we didn't get a chance to do much with them because they were introduced in the middle of the second arc and toward the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hang on to your deck. Yeah. (laughs) I think I I agree with you all as well. My, My retcon here is in the early stage, just seed a couple more things. Um, so that you do get a little bit more of a, okay, how do I fit this weirder thing into my story instead of, oh, it's Doris again. Oh, it's the archaeology department again. Mm-hmm. Is it time for spinoffs? Yeah. So the last question is spinoffs. What about this game would you like to see other games copy or adapt? And Connor, you get to go first on this. See, I don't know that I've played enough of this type of game to be able to answer this question, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. Like, I uh, I mean, I do think that, if nothing else, storytellers or dungeon masters could take away from this the way that a narrative can be structured to make it feel this way. Uh, like, you know, mm, it is time to maybe bring that character back. And so, like, I think that there are lessons you could take away here, but I can't really speak to this versus other journaling game type things because I've never played one until now. So <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I am also not experienced. You know, Fiona, do you want to do you want to give your spinoff before I give mine? Because I realize you've been going third a lot. OK, yeah, uh, sure. I'll that's uh, that's novel. I'll do mine first. Uh, so. Mine is is the the deck building part of this. And I, I think about this is now the third game that we've done that uses a deck of cards. And 
I like that it starts very small. I like that it is controlled and it's sort of shorter. And I think the pacing is sort of more in control of the game, this specific game, rather than other games that use a deck of cards are kind of paced for, hey, people have 52 cards. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's kind of the thing. And so just, yeah, being able to to have these shorter bits, um, I felt like, I, so I played this solo before we recorded just so that I got my own experience with it. And yeah, it was it was great. The the speed of it, uh, I no complaints. I really I really appreciated that. Yeah, it's definitely fast paced in a way that made me feel like in a short amount of time we accomplished a lot of narrative. Yeah, this discussion is making me want to try playing it solo when I have the the window in, in my <laughs> life and, and see what happens. Uh, and being me, I'll, I'll write down everything that happens in great detail and share it with you if you're not careful. Uh, <laughs> Sign up for our newsletter, teamupmoves.com. Oh, wait, for real? <laughs> I, oh, well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I will play this solo and put the results in our newsletter if that is is content that... Sure. Okay, teamupmoves.com. Content. Two-step sign up, very simple. Please do. There's two things that I could take from this game to other games. One of them is just at the level of GMing or of making up superhero stories, which is that the arcs for this game are kinds of stories, they're subgenres of superhero stories. And having, some of you know this, having paid close attention while Fiona was GMing a masks game where I was a, a player for, you know, two years and change, I am now attempting to GM a masks game with uh, other characters. Uh, and as part of my attempt to do what Fiona would do where applicable, I'm going to look at some of these arcs when I need more arcs. The other is not at the level of GMing a more immersive or more traditional RPG. It is at the level of, of game design and moment-to-moment experience, which is that there are a lot of moments when you're playing C-Issue X where you get a binary choice. Mm-hmm. Choose one of these two things, one of these two meanings for a heart card, one of these two meanings for a spade card. If marked, then do this or this. If your card is unmarked, then do this or this. And the idea that everyone playing a game gets an extremely constrained or binary choice of what happens next, Mm -hmm. that would be a fun mechanic for a lot of games. Your powers go wrong in this way or this way. You have this misunderstanding or that misunderstanding, and you choose, but you get two choices. I like that. All right. Well... Now let's get to our final section, and that is the back issues. Here is where we talk about comic runs and other stories that remind us of CSUX. Like, what is what is this game really evoking for us uh, specifically? And Connor, what comes to mind for you? I mean, I've already gone into a lot of examples over the course of this conversation, but I think that in terms of my expertise, so to speak, on the X-Men, what I would expertise. say is... Expertise. I see what you did there. Sure. It felt... I didn't even do that on purpose, but, you know, it, you're not wrong. Um, I'm, I'm just naturally pun-oriented, unfortunately, for the people around me. What I would say is, like, looking at this through the arc of Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor, I think, is really instructive. And the way that... The way that Chris Claremont develops those two characters based on... Again, as Stephanie just said, a very restricted boundary in terms of how the story could go. You look at basically the three events, Dark Phoenix Saga from the Ashes Inferno, and those could be three arcs of this game in which the same cards keep coming up and you have to retcon together a story that makes sense or at least mostly makes sense. And so I think that that is one way of looking at it that's very interesting. I also think that... You know, I I did this from a Batman kind of perspective starting out. Mm-hmm. I, I patterned her after, you know, Batman, Phantom Lady, but also Dr. Fate, Dr. Strange. And those characters are much more grounded at first, too, even when they're like surreal 70s stuff. But then once they develop a cast of characters, a supporting cast that matters to them, enemies who are long-term, you start to see the world evolve and this game evokes that nicely. So I would say that all of those are are evocative, but to me in terms of the the sprawling way that like the constraint that this places on you while also asking you to be very creative and roll with it mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of because Chris Claremont wrote that book for 16 years, the way that he had to roll with a lot of external pressures or requirements or or shifts that he wasn't expecting. Yeah. Because this game simulates, it could simulate 
all of company and superhero comics, in theory, almost any reasonably well-written arc and the number of poorly written arcs in you know any point in any company-owned superhero continuity could, in some sense, be relevant to your experience of this game. And Connor named some X arcs. Uh, I will never not recommend Inferno. Hmm. Uh, Inferno was great. Uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga is great. The particular set of Mesopotamian things come back from your past and it's hard to deal with them. You are a legacy character. You are a reincarnation. You're fighting someone who keeps showing up and sort of inhabiting or corrupting NPCs. I went looking for other stories that were not mutant stories that did that. And I found myself settling on the last story that Steve Gerber wrote. And in fact, he didn't finish it. He was working on it as he was dying. It is a Dr. Fate story with the Kent V. Nelson version of Dr. Fate. And it has been collected as Countdown to Mystery, Dr. Fate. And it's, it's quite moving. Uh, it's one of those stories that starts with someone who's an absolute mess, who has abandoned their superheroic life and abilities. And will he get them back? Does he get them back? How? How does he sort of rediscover the magic space that he belongs in? And it ends with four different potential endings, and you get to choose which one you like. And I believe Mark Wade wrote one of them because Steve Gerber passed away before he could get to the very end of the arc. So Dr. Fate Countdown to Mystery is is my back issue for this this show. Yeah, and much as I poked a little fun at Steve Gerber earlier, obviously I love his work or I wouldn't have incorporated all that Dr. Fate type stuff into this <laughs> yeah. character I was inventing, so. Oh, yeah. I realize I don't talk about Squirrel Girl enough on this podcast, given the relative imp importance of that character to me. And I'm realizing as we're talking that the last arc of the unbeatable Squirrel Girl actually feels like this to me, but almost in the taking the deck of cards from her story and laying them all out and Ryan North just like pulling everything together. Um, you know, he got to, they knew the end was coming and sort of got to plan for it. And it's a wonderful series of callbacks to all of the, the heroes and all of the, you know, quote, villains that very often she, quote, defeated uh, by helping them out and sort yeah. of just like helping solve their problems. Everybody comes back in this last arc. And so that as kind of a, a moment of supreme callback, that's what comes to mind for me for this game. I'm rereading that tonight. I've already, <laughs> under your influence, I've, I've read it a couple times, but I'm, I'm going back to that. Excellent. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. Connor, thank you so much for joining us to play C-Issue X. I had a great time with you. I had great fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now is the traditional podcast time for plugs. So what do you have coming up? Where can people find you? What should our listeners know about? You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. I'm less on Twitter these days because it has become unfun mm -hmm. uh, or even less, even less fun, let's say, because Twitter has been <laughs> a hardship, I would say, to participate in for a few years now. But uh, that's sort of the best places you could find me. You can listen to Cerebro wherever podcasts are found. You can go to Cerebrocast.com for a list of all the episodes and links to the Discord server, which is mostly where I hang out online these days, the merch store, much, much more for $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. You can get exclusive access to the bonus episodes. Ooh. I love doing this stuff and I, I hope to keep doing it. And hopefully soon I'll have some work of my own creative work outside of the podcast to share with people, but who knows? I'm hoping this is the year, but we'll see. I'm hoping this is the year. That's all so exciting. And uh, as, as one of your faithful listeners, I'm just going to basically fangirl at, at everyone. I'm just going to make <laughs> noises. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You've been a big supporter from pretty much the jump. So I really do appreciate that. All right, Steph, ready to say goodbye? No, but it's time, so I have to. Yeah, well, we get to do masks next run. Yes! Okay, now I'm ready. Take care, pals. Bye. Bye. That's it for this run. Come back in two weeks for our 10th run, where we finally play masks. This is a game that has shaped how Stephanie and I think about RPGs, superhero stories, and in some cases, life. 
we've got some amazing masks experts to play with us. So subscribe if you haven't already. You're not going to want to miss this. This run, we've been playing Sea Issue X by Chris Longhurst. You can find it and his other games on his itch page, potatocubed.itch.io. Check the show notes for a link. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2023. We love to chat, even if we don't always love being on Twitter. You can find us as at Team Up Moves there and Team Up Moves at dice.camp on Mastodon. Our website, where you can sign up for our free email newsletter that comes out monthly between runs, is teamupmoves.com. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. Find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. And finally, if you want to help us out, the best thing that you can do is tell a friend about the show. Drop a link on Reddit, in your discords, tweet, publish about it, what have you. We appreciate anything you can do to spread the word. Take care, pals.